0: G'day and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australian infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. In this episode, Janice and I spoke with the Lord Mayor of Melbourne about her journey to the top job, debunking the death of the city and how Melbourne can capitalise on projected rapid population growth.
1: Today we have Sally Capp. Welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if we can start with just your journey to leadership. Um, it didn't look like it was a direct line of, line of sight straight into the merility, but could you tell us a bit about how you started your career?
2: Yes, I started as a commercial lawyer working in private transactions and then moved into public company listings and fundraisings uh, and practiced as a lawyer for 10 years and loved it. Um, Got to a point where I thought I'm going to keep advising or I'm actually going to have a go at the things I've been advising on and uh, decided on the latter, uh, formed a company with a former client uh, and it was an adventure capital business.
0: An adventure capital. What's an adventure capital business? That is
2: high risk, uh, (laughs) high risk investing. Uh, Look, it was a venture capital business, absolutely fantastic, and I really enjoyed that opportunity to uh, to realise what what happens after you give advice as a lawyer and and what then goes into the decision-making because, of course, the legal advice is often just one part, like the accounting advice is one part Uh, And the list goes on in terms of of what uh, leaders and organisations need to consider uh, when uh, making decisions about uh, implementation of their strategies and realising goals. And so it was uh, really a fantastic experience for me, learning by the seat of my pants in many examples uh, of of how complex, uh, how satisfying uh, and sometimes how difficult decision making can
0: be. What kind of things did you invest in?
2: Uh, We mostly invested in financial services businesses. Uh, We also, it's based in Perth at the time, we did a lot of, we could do cash boxes in those days, so much fun. Uh, So we did a lot of mining, uh, lease uh, floats, and and then we started to get into some interesting areas around
1: biotech. Mm.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: And what? from there drove you into public life at what point Mm. did you decide that you didn't want to keep doing that sort of work yeah
2: well look i'm a serial career changer i think i'm up to number 10 and (laughs) there are still more left in me Uh, and that comes a lot from i think a key element of who i am is somebody that loves to have a go uh, really test my own boundaries um, jump into opportunities i'm keen to always keep learning uh, and really, I'm really comfortable outside my comfort zone. Does that mm. make sense? Yes. and uh, and 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 love new experiences and change. So you know that's that's a wow, a, a big subset of who I am as a person. And uh, really, towards the latter part of my career, I've become more interested in being involved in issues that have a broader agenda across community issues or broader economic issues, Uh, and uh, I've I've wanted to get involved in issues that I feel passionate about. And uh, at the time uh, the Lord Mayor role uh, was coming up in 2018, Uh, I, I felt that sense of... Uh, not just wanting to make a contribution, but feeling a responsibility to actually get involved and make a difference.
0: Um, so, w- why then, uh, why a Lord Mayor role? Like, there's lots mm. of ways you can get involved in public life and make a difference. Um, what is it about that level of government, that particular position, that has mm. an attraction?
2: Well, what a good question, Adrian, because I've never (laughs) been in local government before. I'd only ever thought of roads, rates and rubbish and avoided local government as much as I could. I've since become an absolute champion for the sector and the work that we do. Um, But for me, it was very much, um, it was the circumstances of the time I'm a very proud Melburnian. Many of the roles that I've had, including CEO of the Committee for Melbourne, being Agent General for Victoria, uh, operating across Europe and Israel, uh, meant that I'd really built up not just a personal pride, but also a professional pride in Melbourne and Victoria. And of course, there were circumstances at the time here at Town Hall uh, that required change with a tumultuous end to the last Lord Mayor's reign uh, in circumstances uh, that involved sexual harassment claims that obviously pointed to the need for major cultural change here but what really concerned me and many others around town is that the role of Lord Mayor and the institution of the City of Melbourne was absolutely key to the reputation that we had nationally and globally. They're important institutions that are deserving of respect and there was concern about uh, the degrading of that uh, over time and and I felt that that passion to really jump in and make a difference and it was very much driven by that pride for
1: that pride for Melbourne hmm. there was some reporting where you talked a bit about your own experience with thyroid cancer and radiation treatment 12 years ago and um, I wondered whether that was what are the points in your career journey where you sort of thought differently or whether it triggered um, a a change in how you viewed sort of taking risks and going into public life?
2: Yes, Janice, it did. It was a pivotal time in my life uh, and I've been thinking about it a lot actually over the last 18 months because there are so many uh, elements and levers that we use in our lives to maintain a sense of control about Mm our own destiny and what's happening day to day and where we're traveling in the medium to longer term. And I think most of us feel a good sense of confidence around uh, having having that control and management of our own lives. Uh, But when uh, I I had a tumor in 2006, uh, I realized that was a change being thrust upon me in many ways and I felt very much out of control because I just didn't know enough Uh, about cancer at the time and and what it meant for me. And and there is a a fear and a sense of loss of control uh, until you're able to, again, find levers to help manage your way forward and and find treatments and and, uh, regain that balance again in your life. The experience of of COVID um, is obviously very different um, from a personal uh, health issue, but nonetheless, it's a sense of a crisis, a shock um, to our lives personally and professionally, that's been not just that the pandemic was beyond our control, but so many of the decisions being made uh, by other levels of government, um, by organisations, by um, people that we know uh, in our personal lives, all of that decision making became critical and time sensitive, but many of those elements were beyond our control. And I had a sense of very similar elements. And and I I guess I refer to it really as as a shock uh, in our lives. For me, uh, having cancer really did reorient uh, a lot of of, um, what I was uh, seeking in terms of priorities uh, and how I was going to go about it Uh, and really um, big career changes into policy uh, into taking on then, after that, a, a government role, uh, although I was a long way away from the mothership, I always say that, and uh, and getting more involved in in those issues that have a broader community and economic uh, impact. And I've loved every minute of it.
0: Um, you mentioned earlier on about, um, I can't remember the exact three you said, but the things that local council does and roads, for me it's roads, bins and citizenship ceremonies know. I, I, oh, nice. I Haven't heard that one
2: before, but let's run with it.
0: That's because I had a citizenship ceremony, so uh, you know, sort of, I've just you
2: know. one yesterday. Recently, I try every time,
0: yeah, yeah. My, mine was like it was like eight years ago. Right? I'm well established, but. <laughs> but my uh, that that were my principal interactions. Right, r- r- the mm. local roads, the bins, and yeah. the citizenship ceremony. Yeah, y- y- and you mentioned COVID, so just to bring those together. So, what mm. what was there under your remit? Of control as a, a town hall as a lord mayor uh, that that you had to do in response to the mm. to the emerging crisis and the continuing one
2: yeah I, it's it's such a good question because uh, when we first sat down uh, realizing that actually this wasn't something that was going to be a minor inconvenience this was actually something that was shutting our city down. Uh, sitting around the table with our CEO, Justin Hanney and our exec team um, to answer that question. Uh, as many people have said, there was no playbook. Uh, and so I think it, there have been um, a number of devastating and, and difficult uh, times over the last 18 months, but there have also been a lot of silver linings. And for us here at Town Hall, uh, there have been many, but one of those was to really focus on the things that we are absolutely responsible for what are the essential service that nobody else will deliver if we don't. And having that razor focus at the start was really important, one, so that we could uh, deliver. We had still had to collect rubbish, but we were still delivering maternal and health child services and we were still making sure vulnerable people had meals and we were needing to maintain parks, given that was the only place anybody could go, uh, and the list went on. Um, It was important for that reason, but it was also important because, at those times when you feel that things are outside your control, focusing on the elements that you can do and must do gives you good forward momentum. And that was a very positive way for us to, to start what has been an amazing, uh, an, an amazing experience through the pandemic. So really identifying what were the key things. Um, and, of course, you know, people were still building things, so there were still permits um, we still needed pipelines of, of um, activity into the future, we we're helping small businesses survive and identifying with other levels of government where the gaps were, um, the cooperation with other levels of government has been at unprecedented levels, and we don't want to slip back on that another silver lining. Uh, and of course, um, there were two other things I think are important. One was always planning for our bounce backs, and we're in bounce back six, so we're pretty practiced at that now. Um, But also, even though there was an immediacy to the crisis and responding to that, we felt absolutely the responsibility to remain dedicated to progress on the really big conundrums that were facing us prior and that would still be prevalent as we went forward. Uh, Housing is one of those issues and responding to climate change is is another example uh, of that. So, uh, I guess I've just galloped across quite a few things there, but the first thing we did was to make sure that we properly identified the things that nobody else would deliver that we were solely responsible for and we could assure people that we were doing those and we could do them well, even in that situation. And again, um, that was forward momentum for us, but I must say that also was the way we could start to build up confidence in the community uh, that the basics uh, would still happen and happen
0: well. You, you spoke about the interaction between the levels of government and the degree of um, collaboration between levels of government. Obviously, infrastructure is one of those areas where it goes across three levels of government. Um, and, and, you know, the, the person on a journey to work who drives a car, gets a train and walks or gets a bike or have you, they're not thinking about which level of government infrastructure they're on. Across that journey, can you? Um, what is it you want to preserve from that heightened level of collaboration between governments? And and if we can preserve it, what are the dividends that it will hmm. deliver? I
2: think the first thing is that that we've all got distinct roles to play. I mean, often we see a a morphing, uh, and I think it was a terrific part of. COVID that um, we, we all had a heightened sense of what we were directly responsible for as three levels of government. We also worked, I think, pretty effectively to understand um, what the needs were going to be and where the gaps were in what we were currently each doing uh, and played our roles. I mean, for some of those things, uh, we were providing information or, or, or helping where we, we could. Um, and on others, we were playing a, a more of a lead role, and I do think that that's that's meant that there's more of an appreciation uh, for what each does, and I, that's important. I mean, we've got to respect. Mm. Who does what? Um, The next thing I would say is that sense of working together, having a new rhythm. uh, And my contacts have never been healthier in terms of how many mobile phone numbers I have on speed dial, whether it's politicians or it's uh, uh, people working within departments who became necessary for me and, and our CEO to be in regular contact with or various offices. Um, it's absolutely been stunning. And it, it's really resulted, for example, um, I'll sort of uh, progress along. Somewhat from the start to the point where um, through the Council of Capital City Lord Mayors, we've worked very closely over the last 12 months at producing some joint work on economic infrastructure important to capital cities, having that independently reviewed and then liaising both politically and at a department level uh, with federal government, uh, with support from state government, on what are those key drivers, uh, key projects in each of our capital cities. We've never done anything like that before. Mm -hmm. And whilst we didn't get everything we wanted on that list, it's really changed the paradigm of our uh, engagement on those issues uh, in an extraordinary and I think very helpful and effective way, and we don't want to lose that sort of momentum, that those types of relationships. But importantly, it's the dialogue and the way that we work together that I think is much more effective, less formal and more focused on the outcome.
0: Do you think that, um, do you think local government is a missing voice from National Cabinet? I mean, I know Andrew Barr has sort of both hats being a
2: I know. We, we put so much pressure on Andrew. <laughs> uh, he, because he's in our Council of Capital City, yeah. Lord Mayor's, and he's also, of course, on National Cabinet, COAG, etc. cetera. Um, yes, I do. I think we would love to have much more involvement. But we've been very well received on trips to Canberra and, as I said, on, on individual phone calls and other forums. We've been invited to make submissions on things more than we ever have before. Um, we really share that load across the Capital City, Lord Mayor's given you know workloads and interest areas mm. uh, and it's it's worked really effectively. I do think that local government um, has been underappreciated, not just by me personally, uh, but as a very effective, I call it policy up uh, uh, mm. way of working because when you're the 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 most closely connected and at the coal face with community and with delivery, of so many things. I mean, we are in the minutiae of um, major developments and big mm. infrastructure projects, etc. cetera. Um, that's such a helpful perspective that hasn't always been drawn on, utilised uh, and and appreciated for the value that it can bring. And I know that one of my best gifts that I take into state and federal government discussions is that feedback, either um quantified or or subjective qualitative type of feedback into meetings on various issues because it's an important perspective and they're not always able to easily obtain Mm. that type of um that type of information and and let's face it i mean there are there are projects that can make incredible sense on paper uh, but it is it is really useful to put the lens of, uh, of what's happening in the community and public opinion over them as well, even if it's only to mitigate some of the risks on a project and to manage them more effectively. So uh, I really hope that out of this experience, and and just judging the many discussions I've had uh, over the last 18 months, that, um, you know, there's a heightened awareness uh, and respect across all levels of government um, Mm -hmm. to the critical roles that we play and that we feel we can do that better. I mean, National Cabinet is an example of that. Uh, at two levels of government and um, whilst you know there are some things that haven't worked as well as we would all have liked them to it's still a progression on where we were pre-COVID. You
1: you mentioned we've been in this sort of cycle of bounce backs and you also noted and I really like the way you characterised the silver linings as we sort of emerge from this one. um, would you dare to make any predictions about how Melbourne will be a different city at the end? And do you think that there are things that you want to champion that will shape the way the city re-establishes itself after this?
2: Yeah, it's been a really fascinating journey from that perspective because pre-COVID, we were one of the fastest-growing cities, not just in mm. Australia but in the developed world. And in a sense, the, the momentum of that growth Uh, presented its own challenges. You know, it's like a galloping horse and trying to guide it through certain gates uh, as opposed to effectively being a city that is is shut down. Um, So we've gone from a sense of managing and guiding that growth to to obtain the best best and broadest benefits we could uh, to now being in a situation of creating growth. And it's a completely different tool set and approach and and energy, frankly, and uh, we don't want to be daunted by that because it actually, and again, this is an experience I had personally uh, with cancer, is that you don't often get a shock that then means you have to be more deliberate about your future. And we've had a shock, and I wouldn't wish it ever to happen again, But nonetheless, we must and we have a responsibility to ensure that we are far more thoughtful and deliberate about the future than we might otherwise have been able to be given the momentum previously. Um, So what does that look like from our perspective? Well, there are a number of aspects to that. Firstly, uh, our city vision uh, going forward is to be a city of possibility uh, that is uh, really trying to capture that sense of hope and positivity and confidence about our future. It's about um, saying outwardly that we're a city uh, where you can come and achieve your goals and realise your dreams and flourish and, um, whatever it is that you might want to be doing. But it's also a really important narrative internally to say what is our role in that is to create an environment and set up the platforms for other people to be able to achieve their dreams. And our internal uh, phrase for that is city of yes. Uh, and again, some of the silver linings from COVID have been the way we've had to adjust and adapt and be flexible and work at a pace and, frankly, take more risks than we've ever had to before. And we want to capture as much of that as we move forward. So city of possibility. Um, we know that there. it's absolutely key that we have strong economic uh, recovery and growth, uh, and the forecasts look good, but let's face it, it's going to be a really messy and... And and you know and, and and frustrating and anxious turbulence as we move through the transition of of what is the city going to look like in the future and like my, most major cities around the world we're going through this at the same time and one of the key drivers of what. of of, of the turbulence is what does the future of work look like? What is the new rhythm of the city going to be? And we really want to run towards that transition and transformation because... The longer that messiness goes on, it's a technical term, messiness, uh, <laughs> the more costly it will be, the more distracted we'll be from the future. So so we're very mindful of that. And mm-hmm. then um, more broadly, it is to make sure that we remain dedicated to progress. Um, as we come back, we do want to make sure that it's, um, it, that it's an inclusionary economic recovery. Um, we do want to make sure uh, that we're addressing big conundrums like affordable housing and looking at that housing spectrum. And guess what? During COVID, the Victorian government, after some amazing work that we've done together with the service agencies, two levels of government of providing housing for rough sleepers during COVID, um, that work translated into the recognition of that that priority of housing and that $5.3 billion commitment to housing here in Victoria, which is huge. And uh, and and we're really working on that at a pace um, with, of course, lots of stakeholders across Victoria to make sure we deliver on those things as quickly as possible on, on those uh, goals. Um, and then, as I, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's climate change is one of the really big challenges uh, that we're facing. And I mean, infrastructure has an enormous role to play both in the current situation and where that embedded energy or the embedded emissions are, and in how we do better in the future, both with mitigation and adaptation. So uh, that gives you a bit of a sense of, of how we re, where we're organising ourselves Uh, as we move forward and we strongly believe for example that we can be here in Melbourne and Victoria a centre for clean energy innovation and we can drive new jobs and new industries from that we strongly believe in the ongoing uh, power of startups and entrepreneurs and that commercialisation of intellectual property and the momentum that that can provide for us etc. On the other side We've got big challenges like immigration policy and how quickly we can get our international and interstate borders open, knowing how important it is for international companies to look at our market as a national market, not state by state because of, of scale.
0: So, so I, I want to pick it. you up on, the, on the, um, the last piece that you mentioned, the, the population mm-hmm. piece. And you, you said earlier that the, the projections, the forecasts are good. So that's that's the forecast around how the economy bounces back. You went from fastest growing part of Australia and one of the fastest part growing parts uh, cities in the world, to uh, closed borders, um, restricted to natural population growth, and maybe a bit of internal migration to other parts of the country. what What are the projections? How does it come back?
2: Well, Adrian, don't we love economic forecasts?
0: <laughs> yeah, so, they're never right.
2: We've put a lot of effort into this because we have to. We have to not just have a narrative, but we have to actually deliver on that narrative.
0: So pre- That's right, because it's, you have an impact on it, right? It's, it's not just, yeah. you don't just do these projections and then sit like you, the decisions oh, you gosh, make no. genuinely oh, gosh, affect... No. Exactly. That pathway.
2: It's so important to us. Our gross local product pre-COVID had just hit $104 billion in our municipality, 37 square kilometres, $104 billion. It's bigger than the ACT Northern Territory and Tasmanian uh, GSP combined. So it, it's and we know it's about 25% of the state's economy and it's about 8% of the nation's GDP. It's, it's, it's important that we get this right and we understand uh, how, um, how we can drive towards the future that we want. So the estimates show that we will get to about $150 billion economy uh, by 2031, that we will go from 460,000 jobs in the in our municipality to about 620,000 jobs. The data on population shows that that Melbourne will be Australia's most populous city by about 2027, which is only 12 to 18 months later than projections pre-COVID. Uh, and, and so those projections sound not just hopeful, but brilliant. I mean, that's very, very positive growth. But that's all predicated on the assumptions, the assumptions that we will, together with state government particularly, but also federal government, deliver the right policies, the right projects, the right investments, and um, pull the right levers uh, to, uh, to deliver on the assumptions that have been made. And there are some mm-hmm. strong assumptions in it.
0: So, so 620,000 jobs versus 400 and uh, however many it was yep. you said now. Are um, you listening
2: to me, Adrian?
0: I'm, I Am <laughs> <laughs> I right? I'm, I'm listening closely. There were a lot of numbers. Um, I, should, I should have said, <laughs> pardon? Um, You're right, taking So, the so, so um, 37 square kilometres, 620,000 jobs, yep. but a post-COVID job is... Um, less location-specific, perhaps, than a pre-COVID job? Yes. I think that's a fair comment. Yeah. Well, you know? I think, of
2: course it is, yeah. flexibility. Like um, yeah.
0: well, not all of them, but some of them. You know, it's hard to work as a barista from home, but you know, relatively easy as a, as a knowledge worker. So 620,000 jobs, the, the home base is in your municipal area, but perhaps the person isn't there all of the time? What kind of impact do you think that's going to have? Well,
2: the jobs numbers really, Adrian, go to, um, you know, where the jobs are, but where the employer is based. Let's say that. But but I know where you're going in terms of um, how do we see this change to the way we work um, then adding up to that jobs growth in our municipality in the future. Mm. The first thing to say is that we're really lucky here in Melbourne to have two significant urban renewal areas in Fisherman's Bend and Arden, Um, major, um, bigger than any other um, areas that capital cities have now uh, in Australia. And there are about 80,000 at least jobs contemplated to be based mostly with flexibility uh, in those those areas Um, Actually, I should say, sorry, 80,000 jobs in Fisherman's Bend, about uh, 15,000 jobs in Arden, so 95,000 jobs just in those two areas alone. Uh, And then, of course, it's other job growth across key sectors that we have here in Melbourne, uh, and that includes everything that goes into the knowledge sector, which is, of course, not just our universities and and all of the R&D spin-outs, from there, but of course, uh, professional services and tech, just to name uh, a couple that um, really drive jobs. The flexibility element is is important because we do need to know what that rhythm looks like. What does that mean? Floor space commitments, um, infrastructure, certainly uh, transport infrastructure as well. We've just completed a transport review to update our transport strategy. Uh, and the list goes on. I mean, waste, for example, and what happens. And that all then impacts our investments and our decision-making. And it is that virtuous circle, of course, because we're driving then a lot of those strategies um, towards those outcomes. Um, we feel a big responsibility to play our part in nurturing existing uh, existing elements of our economy that that where we can drive growth, but also, as I said earlier, look for and support those new areas. And we understand we might not be playing the main role in that, um, but we can certainly, I mean, I love the agitator role, by the way, that's a great thing for local government, you uh, know, in, in a constructive way. Uh, but uh, it's all of the complementary and supportive roles we can play in how those Uh, economic uh, elements play out. And we're completely up for it. But we've put a huge effort into our economic development strategy that runs over the next 10 years. uh, And we are focused on really delivering uh, on on those forecasts.
1: Mm -hmm. Just back to what you're saying about population growth. I think it's a really interesting topic in Australia. And I think Australian governments can sometimes be a bit ambivalent about the subject. You know, but Certainly, in the context of cities, it's often linked to kind of economic vibrancy and opportunities for renewal. Do you get any pushback from from constituents on this, or is it different within the city? And I think I say that in the context of some people will be surprised, m- many will know, but that Melbourne's population is meant to be bigger than Sydney's within a few years, and I th- that that's quite a rate of growth. What's the response? Yeah. Hmm.
2: Yeah, well, I think it is. Um, I'm a city dweller uh, and um, I think there's uh, obviously an acceptance of high-density living in, in mm, cities. Yeah. And, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, we had a, a an economic um, crash down here, a financial uh, sector crash, and we were described then as a moribund city in a rust bucket state. And I remember wow. it because I was—I uh, know it's harsh, isn't it? Ouch. of New South Wales called us that, uh, and uh, I remember it distinctly because I was a young worker in the city at the time. I hadn't graduated law yet, but. Um, I was close, but I I was contemplating my future. I was working in a local pub and I remember walking home to the, walking to the train station and thinking, do you know what, maybe I don't have a future here because it felt so quiet and dead and there was a general sense that, um, that, 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 that we weren't firing on all cylinders and that sense of hope. Um, may have briefly gone. And and I hold that memory very dear in the current situation. That's why I'm so keen on City of Possibility, because I don't want particularly any young people walking around town thinking they've got to go somewhere else to fulfil their personal and professional uh, uh, lives. Um, So having said that, uh, uh, the, and the reason I raised it, and it's always good to have a point, I know, uh, even on podcasts, is that um, the policy settings of the City of Melbourne um, following that crash and uh, working with state government uh, was called Postcode 3000. It's still regarded as one of the most impactful urban transformation policy approaches in the world. We get people visiting us to come and see the outcomes. And it had some key elements to it. One of them was to welcome residents into the city. At the time in our Hoddle grid, just to give you a sense, We had 685 people registered as living in the hoddle grid. We now have 42,316 people living in that hoddle grid area, let alone the growth in South Bank, Docklands uh, and beyond. And those residents have become the pulse of the city and drive a lot of confidence as as to what's happening uh, for small businesses particularly, but a lot of our cultural institutions as well, because they literally fill theatres and galleries and museums, uh, as well as of course, uh, eat and shop. Uh, at our local, uh, our local in our local sector. So uh, for us now, we, we recognise the value of those residents. It's why we have a campaign at the moment, uh, which is this is your local, uh, to really highlight the benefits of living in the city. It's why we negotiated with the state government uh, stamp duty exemptions uh, that they'd taken away from us, um, but for certain areas in the city of Melbourne. And they recognise too that residents in the city uh, are really important and of course we we do have some stock um, that we would like uh, to uh, to see purchased um, residential stock to really then um, push along the pipeline for future residential developments in the city Uh, so for all of those reasons um, living in the city is, uh, is critical to us and central to driving uh, the economy of the future as well. And more and more, I think we're seeing even in the middle ring, you know, that, that people have been enjoying um, working at home and being close to services and the community. And that's on steroids in the city in terms mm-hmm. of your ability to access services, entertainment and work. Uh, and we're the original 15-minute suburb. So we're really pushing out creds. Uh, in that way. So from a population perspective, um, we're feeling uh, really, well, we're being very positive and proactive in, in attracting more people to live in the
0: city. Mm. Um, climate change has come up a, a few times in our discussion. Mm. Um, I, I mean, it's sort of, um, this is kind of a microcosm for the the. the City of Melbourne's view as being a, this really small municipality in a in a in a larger country and then Australia is a, a small part of a larger world. Um, but at least now we have a so we have um, Commonwealth governments committed to net zero 2050. Um, all state governments had previously done that. I know cities have done that. Um so what's the contribution that the City of Melbourne has to make, and how do, we, how do we make that a race to zero rather than a sort of a stumble to 2050?
2: Wow, Adrian. Uh, it's, it's such an important perspective for all of us because I really come from the camp that says everybody has a responsibility to participate at a pace and a scale, whatever is possible, uh, and that will have an impact globally. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't come from the camp that says, well, we're only a minnow in this, therefore mm. what we do doesn't matter. Uh, and I think um, it matters for so many reasons. So, um, and I've learned so much about this as well since I uh, became Lord Mayor in 2018. It's been a real, uh, a rocket me and i've loved every minute of it even though there are so many challenges involved but the first thing to say is that i'm an elected representative and my constituents say they want us to take urgent action on climate change so i feel really confident to go into lots of forums and to to immerse ourselves in work and investment here because that's what our population is telling us they want Um, Many of them have different ways of going about it, there's no doubt, but as a a premise. Uh, And that really drove us declaring a climate and biodiversity emergency in 2019. And uh, we were at that point the 1,241st city in the world to do it. So we weren't pioneers on that. Uh, And I think it, it goes as well to the sense that cities represent really the people power approach to responding to climate change because it's literally the bottom up. Uh, And it's that both in terms of policy but also in programs because our focus is on what can we do at our local government people-focused level. And the fact is we can do a lot. So under our... emergency declaration, as well as our own strategies, our targets are net zero 2040 and 100% renewable electricity by 2030. Uh, And we've got a lot of work ahead of us. But here at the City of Melbourne, I'm pleased to say uh, that we were carbon neutral in 2012, that in 2019, we switched to 100% renewable electricity across our operations. We still have operations we need to electrify, but the electricity we use... That happened through a program called the Melbourne Renewable Energy Program, where we partnered with 10 other organizations at the time uh, across sectors, other local governments, universities, banks, and we entered a power purchase agreement for wind energy. It was that simple, and it, but it made enormous inroads. We've done another round of, of MREP now, and it's already, that program alone has reduced our emissions across our municipality by 5%. -hmm. And that's something we could all just go and do. Our next effort um, at a significant level is called Power Melbourne, which is about renewable energy battery storage at scale uh, at what's called community grid um, scale or neighbourhood, as we like to say, uh, where we're going to have a very public Uh, program of batteries located around the city that will help encourage more generation of renewable energy, which is again, uh, where infrastructure comes in, but also uh, the use because so many of our residents said we can't participate in MREP. So what else can we do to get involved? We want to be proactive in the generation and use of renewable energy. And if, if you take transport out of it, Uh, In our municipality, 60% of our emissions come from existing commercial buildings and the way that they use energy, and there's an enormous amount of work that we can do together. But I think Mm -hmm. it's the together word that really sums it up for what we're doing because we can become, as an organisation, 100% renewable electricity or reduce our own emissions But actually, we have a responsibility to deliver, uh, govern and and lead across our municipality. And that means working together with all of the other uh, organisations and individuals uh, to make a difference. So we've set those municipal wide targets uh, so that we can really be focused on scale and pace and 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 it is it's a it's a major
1: major priority for us where will the batteries be deployed Will they be on commercial buildings like yeah. will you be able to well, sort of
2: we're offering them? to have them on council owned land to start mm. with so that that's not a barrier mm-hmm. in terms of where they are but we want to position them so that they can be uh, effective at storing renewable energy for starters Uh, and we're hopeful of really kicking off more of renewable energy generation projects around the city to assist with that. We also want them to be on public land so that we can use them for research, awareness, information and education uh, and so that people could literally walk up to them and understand what's going on and be inspired and also feel impactful if they're involved in, in that particular battery for some reason um, to feel feel the impact of that and that they're making a difference. So uh, we are planning on having these community-scale um, batteries um, a, a, and, and, and a network of them across, I've missed the word I'm looking for, but a network of them across our city uh, on public land. And, uh, and we've already, since we announced it, Um, so much interest from the private sector and from the public.
0: How available are your energy generation opportunities? You have less roof space per person, I imagine, than just about anywhere else in the country.
2: We do, but we have a lot of latent roof space that's not being utilised at the moment. And so we've still got big capacity to be able to um, show some good innovation and action in that regard. Um, we are also looking at our uh, roof space, not just ours, but but um, the Royal We across the city, um, hectares and hectares of uh, space that could be used also for green roof spaces, which obviously helps us enormously, uh, both in terms of um, emissions. And how we manage them better but also stormwater management in the city is an issue as those weather events become more extreme uh, and so um, we're working on on projects there as well i've really just picked two mrep and power melbourne to give you an indication but of mm. course it all filters down from there and even during COVID, we did our first bogo trial um which in you know densely populated cities, 84% of our residents live in high-rise, so it's it's not easy. Um, We've started with the low-rise, that won't surprise you, but we've had an incredible take-up around FOGO and the bigger challenge for us, of course, is FOGO that comes from hospitality businesses, which is the biggest contributor to landfill from our waste in the city.
0: Well, I wanted to talk about waste because that is a big area of what local governments and municipal services providers do. So, and a big area of emissions as well, as well particularly through methane. So, um, yeah, we talk about transport emissions, we talk about energy emissions, we talk about emissions in construction, but waste is a big one as well. So what can be done in that area?
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's enormous. For us, the um, top of the pops on our waste and resource recovery strategy is to, is to reduce waste full stop. I used to be one of those people that used to think just burn everything and create energy from it and you've solved the problem but of course unless we do more to actually reduce waste in the first place we're just going to be on a vicious cycle Mm -hmm. uh, even if we're burning waste to create energy so uh, a a really big focus for us on is, is on how we reduce waste and of course there are so many ways we can do that from Uh, glass bottle recycling container deposit schemes which we don't have here in Victoria um, but we're going to that's underway now uh, which seem like simple things but can be highly effective given the contamination that glass has in recycling uh, waste Uh, through to um, really a big piece of work we're doing at the moment um, with what is the M9 which is the inner Melbourne 9 councils uh, is to look at where market failure is at the moment in recycling uh, and to see how we can work as a collective uh, to make a big difference in the commercial landscape there. Uh, and so that work is, is underway at the moment. So for us, waste uh, has um, reduced waste in the first place, um, reduced waste to landfall by 95%. Um, And part of that is more, uh, is dealing with FOGO because that's, apart from commercial waste, FOGO is the biggest component of our waste that goes to landfill. Mm. And then it's about how we participate in the circular economy, not participate actually, just been talking about it today, but how we can lead the way in creating markets. And let's face it, for big organisations, like ours, uh, and um, with other big organisations who are members of yours, how we run procurement to support more uh, of the circular economy or closed loop uh, is is a key focus for us at the moment. Because if we create more demand, um, then we will see the private sector really move into uh, into create. I don't want to say they're not creative at the moment, but if there's not enough demand, then private sector. Yeah, won't but
0: they, they respond to the incentives to. Exactly. To make it, I, I just want to backtrack for a second about that kind of waste hierarchy, and mm-hmm. you, you mentioned burning or or energy from waste. Yeah. Um. That I think it's broad agreement that that sits above landfill in a mm-hmm. hierarchy of waste. It's sort of a it's a least worst option relative mm-hmm. to. Landfill is it something you'd consider as a as a um, one of the streams of waste where it can't be dealt with higher up that hierarchy around not creating it and reusing it and recycling it?
2: Well, as I said at the start of my journey here at the city and. I was all for that being right up the top of the hierarchy. I thought that was something we could really accelerate. But but we've made a commitment here at the City of Melbourne to move that down our hierarchy. It is above landfill, but um, actually um, we're not considering waste to energy, uh, at least until we've made some significant inroads into reducing waste full stop mm. uh, because we thought that if we rush to that, then it doesn't mean that there'll be enough attention and investment put into reducing waste, and that's really important because, as I said, you know, we we should be looking for um, and supporting the innovations that really drive circular economies. I mean, I, I got to meet with the, the the prime minister of the Netherlands and 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 delve into what they're doing there. They've they've turned waste into economic opportunities for their nation. Um, and we should be doing the same, particularly given where we sit as, a, as an enormous island um, and that thought that we were basically shipping all of our dirty waste offshore, is, isn't is that terrible? Mm-hmm. Um, so moving quickly beyond all of that to reduce waste full stop and to find to make sure that we've leveraged everything we can out of those other approaches before we resort to waste to energy. And I think it does have a role to play um but it's not a priority for us at the moment as we pursue pursue those other elements
1: the the m9 do they focus primarily on waste are there other areas by where, where councils yeah. collaborate yeah. So we've formalised
2: M9 over these last 12 months. We've tried to be as productive as we can during uh, these COVID times and and I'm really proud of the progress we've all made working together. We've identified um, key issues and uh, we've now got papers and policy approaches on all of those and we now move into action mode into next year. Um, Waste uh, and recycling is a major uh, area of focus and the work I was uh, talking about earlier uh, where we've looked at the market, market failures, where are the gaps and how we might be able to respond. That work, which I haven't seen the results of yet, um, but they're pending. Uh, that is a priority uh, priority for us and we think we can make a, a really big impact there. Um, another area of focus is renewable energy. Uh, another area of focus is affordable housing, and another area of focus is that's well-developed is, um, is economic revitalisation, as you can imagine, um, and we've already done some great work together there. And the last one I thought I should mention, because you haven't mentioned it yet, is active
1: transport. I was going to raise that next. Uh, that's the next question. I feel Very like controversial. let's get there. Let's do uh, but, this. Yeah, <laughs> Is it controversial? Surely not. Uh, <laughs>
2: the BL words are uh, <laughs> uh, cause a lot of fiery responses here.
0: But let's go macro with the question. Then. So you had your, your 10-year transport strategy. Yeah. That you've um, just sort of outlined the initiatives and... Um, some of that is active transport but um clearly bringing people into your 37 square kilometers is crucial for the economic revitalization so how, what's the plan for how you get people mm. in and around your your neck of the woods uh for the next 10 years and mm. beyond
2: yeah well transport it's just a fundamental isn't it um particularly for us it's 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 of our daily trips happen on public transport in normal times, if I can revert to that. Um, 75% of those are for work purposes. Uh, And uh, it's it's just the main driver of uh, people movement in our city and in most major cities. Uh, It's true. We've got Melbourne Metro 1 that is um has been progressing well and we actually haven't talked about it in any big way and the state government but it's it's a real game changer for us here in Melbourne as it comes online in 2024 and 2025 um so public transport absolutely can the biggest challenge for us and I, I'm not sure I must ask um, my other uh, lord mayors around Australia but Melbourne is still a cut through for so many motorists I can't believe it 43 percent of the traffic coming into the city is through traffic and we've got to find ways to change that because that is the congestion uh, that impacts our city uh, roads.
0: So that's uh, mad so nearly yeah, half the is, cars driving mm-hmm. around Melbourne yes. aren't going in. Oh, in I any yeah.
2: economic value to our city uh, and we've got to find ways of diverting that and look we have been I mean one of them is is uh, reducing speed limits so People get frustrated. Can I say that, or they don't see it as, as as efficient way of getting from A to B when they're only travelling through? We've been doing little street particularly quietening, uh, which mm. is shared pedestrian and car zones, which are going really well. Um, I think we're getting much better at that in Australia. Um, yeah. Many motorists would say the bike lanes are a way of uh, of. Uh, Encouraging people not to use city streets. But of course, protected bicycle lanes, which we have accelerated the rollout during COVID, we took that opportunity. Um, Bicycles, we saw a 200% increase in bicycle sales during COVID. um, uh, An enormous amount of worker commuter traffic is on bicycles, and we're expecting to see that jump. Uh, as people and particularly as workers return. And we need to find ways that our transport network overall accommodates all modes of transport. And uh, we're seeing, well, I mean, around our city for trips around the CBD, 89% of those trips are done by foot. When you think of all of the people coming out of a train station, then walking around the city, people getting out of major tram stops and walking around the city, that makes sense. So a big focus for us has also been pavements. We've got a big project underway at the moment on our footpaths. and and pavements to make sure that they're walkable, uh, but importantly, that we've extended them and we're extending them, particularly around those major public transport hubs, uh, which makes sense. And uh, we still, of course, need to make sure that our road system works well for not just cars, but importantly, delivery vans, trades, uh, people that are supporting our local businesses, And um, that's a challenge when 43% of those uh, cars are just people passing through. It's very frustrating. But, look, the Deloitte report showed that at peak hour, protected bicycle lanes mean that 800 cars are taken off the roads uh, each hour, and that is a huge benefit for the community because active transport is healthier uh, personally it's better for the environment, but it also does a great job at reducing congestion uh, for uh, for cars and commercial traffic. Uh, and so i've really gone around all of the modes well, there. I'm, with you. I'm gonna, uh, that gives you a bit of an insight into to where we're at
0: I'm going to drill down on those so so forty three percent of the journeys aren't there to access, of car journeys aren't there to access the CBD yeah uh, you're doing things like quietening. You're taking road space for bike lanes in some instances, reducing speed limits to, I think you use the word frustrate drivers. They're, they're rationing tactics um, and p- potentially not economically efficient tactics. What about charging going. people for yeah. congestion? Using that space?
2: Yeah. It is in our transport strategy to consider that. I think at the moment timing is everything at the moment and and the the pace but also um, how we coordinate different transport responses is going to be absolutely vital to drive revitalisation. For example, our on-street parking, um, which is highly precious and valuable space, is better used for short term parking shoppers to come in, run into shops, get something run out again, as opposed to longer term shopping. So we are bringing back more short term. And of course, we're working with our commercial car park operators uh, who have three or four times the amount of car parks we do um, for better deals so that we can, you know, help help uh, car drivers out as much as possible around parking. Mm. Um, Now, Adrian, the reason I went there is because at the moment the view is we want to make sure we're encouraging people whatever mode of transport they're using to come in. But that 43% number really does, uh, I think, um, mean that the whole debate about congestion levies is real. Um, I was in London when mm. they brought in the inner London congestion levy and I couldn't believe that overnight, literally or over a weekend, so on the Monday morning when it started, the difference in traffic was remarkable. Mm. And uh, I think it is grown up to have debates around things like congestion levy, even though uh, they can be unpopular or the media and some public debate can take them uh, can skew the view on how effective things like congestion levies are. Um, yep. um, but can I just say very quickly that we've effectively got a congestion levy and the parking levy at the moment, and it hasn't really made a material difference on congestion. That d- doesn't
0: affect those forty three percent of people that aren't. It coming doesn't. In city, it though, doesn't. Does it?
2: I agree, and I think though that as we look at a congestion levy that might impact the 43 and we might have to revisit, you know, some of the current levies to make sure that we're not skewing the outcome to something that we don't want, which is that no cars come into the
0: city. You yeah. invoked London, so I might, I might just... Um, what happened in London was a, a, the, uh, in the creation of the Mayor of London position um and the the first mayor of london being ken livingston the the central government transferred the right to impose a congestion charge they transferred that right um, sort of legally to the new um reformed greater london authority and the mayor of london Mm, yeah um would we need to do that in the australian context would would we need a state government to give you that power in order to uh, and if if they if they do, would you want it?
2: Mm. Mm. Really interesting because, of course, Brisbane is is the example of a a super local government. I think they do a great job up there, and we really look with envy at some of the things they're able to do and the levers that they can pull, um, mm. particularly around CBD and the way it can operate more effectively. Look, I mean, I've got to say, I mean, one of our first focus. Uh, um, work around this is that the existing congestion charge, um, we don't get our fair share of that to be able to use those funds to ameliorate, which was was supposed to do, ameliorate impacts of cars in the city. And um, so we'd like to be able to do more of that, more directly be able to participate in that revenue, uh, as was originally uh, envisaged. Um, but I think, yes, would we like to have more of a role in, Uh, the way that we can use those levers to impact the way the city works, the answer is yes, Adrian. It took me a long time to get there, I know. (laughs) Maybe I've been a politician too long, small (laughs) town politician. Um, But, yes, I think those are very, very effective levers. We look at the work that Mm. Infrastructure Victoria um, did when it was its first report and that has continued to repeat the importance of levers like congestion levies and... When uh, you are in leadership positions, you can't back away from policies and settings that are the right thing to do, even if they may be unpopular at Mm. certain times. And, again, I come back to timing is everything, um, but we should be talking about these important levers uh, and how Mm. we use them.
1: Is the congestion charge in London hypothecated for for specific uses or is it just...?
0: Yeah, it's it's hypothecated to um, transport. To transport in transport for London, in effect, yeah. Well, Although wow, it, wow. It, it has um, has quite high operating costs, it is a it is designed as an exclusion charge mm. rather than for efficient revenue. But the revenue is um, d- does go to transport. Mm. Um, just to finish the point, so every time Infrastructure Victoria says um, do a congestion charge, or others say do a congestion charge, it, it gets ruled out like before breakfast by the premier and by the leader of the opposition, irrespective of, of who's in government at the time. Um, if they simply transfer the, the decision making power for that to, um, to you as the, um, the, the Lord Mayor, but more broadly, the institution that you lead, it would somewhat solve the problem of them having to rule it out every time it gets raised.
2: It would depoliticise it, but the way that the scheme is contemplated, it does have impacts in other municipalities as well. And I think the coordination of that so we get the best outcomes is really important. Could we possibly do that through other... Um, other structures such as M9, um, possibly. Mm. M9 is relatively new anyway. Um, But again, I think they're really worthwhile discussions and debates. And even though they may not, um, you know, we might not be having them in public realms actively at the moment, um, they remain levers and policies that we, we do have ongoing consideration and discussion and dialogue on. And I think that's healthy because... We've got to be exploring everything um, to understand what could be the most effective um, way forward. And again, it takes me to that point about local government and how, um, you know, how how effective we can, the effective role that we could play on some of these issues uh, to potentially depoliticise, if you like, um, but also to really be able to have those discussions at a ground level and drive potentially a different narrative that other levels of government may not be able to do from time to time.
0: Hmm. And we might just go back. I'm not
2: anticipating that they give us that power anytime. Soon. <laughs> no.
0: no, we'll ask them to give it the power.
1: IPA's next campaign.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, with the bike lanes, oh, can I ask about the... Transport plan, like with with bike lanes, it, in some ways, it would be a bit of a gift to the city to have that all joined up because it is, Melbourne is a really good city for it. It's got flat, it's got that grid structure. You know, it. I do find when I go to Melbourne for work, I I walk around the city differently to how I do in other cities. Um, what what gets so sensitive is it about using that road space. Instead of for that, instead of parking, is it just that? So is there a direct trade off between those two modes?
2: Well, interestingly, we've really tried to preserve the parking, and mm-hmm. um, but that means that that a lane of driving.
1: You know, of through yeah. traffic
2: has has um, gone. We've we've been really thoughtful about where the protected bicycle lanes are, so that they do represent, as you just said, uh, the bicycle commuter routes that come from outside our city boundaries. I think it's important to to support that, of course, and 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 we look at it going in in outflows as well. And we have a metropolitan transport forum here that is regularly discussing how we. Uh, how we make sure that those uh, major bicycle routes are connected because more people will use them, and particularly women, because because the statistics and surveys all show that um, women will ride more when they can access protected bicycle lanes. We've just been talking this week actually about the completion of a continuous six-kilometre route that runs from South Melbourne in the city of Port Phillip through the Mm. city of Melbourne and uh, those sorts of uh, um, finalizing those connections are really material in the way that our bicycle uh, our bicycle transport will move uh, and what that means for other modes of transport in those areas and around them as well. But typically the you know the backlash comes from people who are car drivers that feel that we're trying to push cars out of the city we're not trying to do that at all we're trying to equitably share precious transport infrastructure across all modes of transport and all of our forecasting and modeling tells us that we need to provide safe places for bicycle riders they're not on every road and and they really represent those major bicycle routes that have been um, modeled out Um, but nonetheless transition does create controversy and discussion. And really, we need to just keep having more of it. In fact, I have people that write to me and say very passionately, they're so upset with the impact of bicycle protected bicycle lanes on Collins Street. We don't have any protected bicycle lanes on Collins Street. So there's, there's a lot of sort of perception over reality. And mm-hmm. we have a responsibility to actually better manage that. We need to communicate more. We need to bring more facts and figures. And we need to help people understand why this transition may be painful because it's changed a bit of how people move, or they have, um, they feel that their trips are taking longer. So we actually feel that responsibility to be more active around, uh, around the narrative and the communication and the facts. And a big part of that is to keep saying we need people who drive cars to keep accessing the city. It's just that, of course, we need to provide safe spaces as well for bicycle riders pedestrians public transport users and then the pressure is on e-scooters all the delivery bikes -bikes, e-bikes e-bikes themselves and what does that mean for how we regulate bicycle lanes and we're preparing ourselves for aerial vehicles and the way that they will interact with our city transport infrastructure as well so all of that is underway uh, and it couldn't be more crucial because transport is the fundamental element to successful
0: cities. Um, now, before I ask my final question, we might there's, there's just one I wanted to ask that we can splice back in towards the start. So I will um <clears throat> we'll we we'll, we'll record this back in so it will appear in context. Um, <laughs> so uh, you're the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally, but um, if I can say something of a fraud because you weren't born in Melbourne, were you? No, I was not. Where were you born?
2: I was born in Rabaul, Papua, New Guinea. I had very adventurous parents.
0: I, so I just... I, I see no fraud. <laughs> no, it's not fraud. So... so... Why were why were your parents in P- they were
2: in PNG? Well, yeah, they're in PNG. It, it had become a um, a territory of Australia at the time. They were really uh, appealing to people to come and live there and work there and and help uh, with some of the projects up there. My dad was an accountant and uh, and he helped manage some uh, um, plantations up there. Um, my mother. Uh, added to the retail vibrancy of Rabaul with a dress shop. Uh, They played lots of golf uh, and they really had a fantastic expat time. And they feel that they really um, and they loved interacting with the locals and uh, sharing knowledge and building up new skill sets and capabilities there. Of course, in 72, uh, um, Papua New Guinea took back um, governance of their territory, which is entirely appropriate. And, of course, there have been some mixed outcomes there over time, but I think on the whole, you know, one of our strongest relationships as Australia is with Papua New Guinea and good work and collaboration still uh, happens there. I've taken it all very sort of political and, and governance, but my parents had the best time uh, so, living on a tropical island, and I have some very uh, clear memories of our, our time there as a family.
0: So I was mm-hmm. going to ask you: is it? It's a time of your life you remember? It's I not do, I do. Originally.
2: Yeah, very much. Yep, yep. Beaches. How, how old were you when you moved um, to Australia? Um, I was five, so oh, very okay. young. Yeah. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So you began your schooling back in Australia.
2: Yes, um, yes, I did, but we had a very active kindergarten and preschool uh, life and um, and some really great memories of time there. But my biggest takeaway from that is how adventurous I think my parents were. I mean, mm. they used to sort of sit in those big DC tens and strap themselves to the side of the plane to get up there and sometimes we had to take a boat to get back down Uh, And or ship, I should probably call it, um, uh, all of the elements of of feeling, um, you know, that you're pioneering on some aspects of what they were doing. And I think that sense of adventure has certainly been instilled in me in the way that I've gone about life as well, which is fantastic.
0: Um, Now, we always ask all of our guests the same question to finish on, which is uh, what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why?
2: Ooh...
0: What a good question
2: uh, and I didn't know it was coming so I haven't come prepared uh, and I'd have to say that my favourite form of infrastructure is public transport infrastructure. Uh, I'm a big public transport user. It's absolutely critical to our city and uh, its future and I feel blessed in some ways about, certainly in comparison to other municipalities across Victoria, Australia, and even the world about the public transport infrastructure we have. And I think it's been a, a major driver of our success.
1: Can I ask a question that we might splice back in earlier? Just advanced aerial mobility, you mentioned it just a moment ago. When can we expect it? And what, what, how will that change Melbourne? What what will it look like in the city?
2: Yeah, well, we were identified as one of Mm. the three test cities around the world, and, of course, COVID has changed uh, some of those plans. But what it did is it really sparked a lot of activity, interest and work At a state and local government level, Mm. uh, working with the private sector on what the possibilities were, and I now follow up with some interest. And one of our councillors, Councillor Phil Lalou, is is also very interested, invested, and active in the sector directly. Uh, And so um, it's really involved Mm. understanding um, and speaking with the people manufacturing Mm -hmm. uh, aerial vehicles, um, mostly manned at this initial stages, and a lot of that goes to perception and and humans and the way we work, but also unmanned in the future. Uh, And we're doing that so that We have that responsibility of the intersection in the public realm for transport, and we want to make that experience as seamless as possible. So working with the big public transport operators, with Vic government uh, and the resources that they and infrastructure they own. And then our uh, participation literally of somebody walking along the city and being able to access Uh, aerial vehicles, um, they have been the discussions that that are ongoing uh, here. And I'm really excited about them. Um, Would we love it if we were ahead of the curve? Absolutely. Uh, And so we've got some good aspirations there. But regardless, um, whenever it comes, we want to make sure that we can really make the most of what could really add an enormous amount of efficiency to everybody's lives and to way, the way the city works? And we've been looking at where those higher volume uh, travel routes would mm. be. Uh, and I think that's really exciting to look at where we can find those efficiencies and we can we can have it work well so that it creates a positive momentum for that new mode. And then I see people with those power packs on their backs and it spins me into a whole nother uh, you know, area of thinking about how would we manage that around the city. We're just getting used to e-scooters here, so there's a long way to go. But, uh, you know, transport infrastructure is really moving at a pace as, um, as though the vehicles for transport moves and we've got to be alive to it. And that includes looking at what are the future uses of our above-ground commercial car parks um, given that we're moving potentially into unmanned vehicles and uh, mm. and the way that they work on our roads, so it's pretty exciting stuff. Really, yeah. and we don't it want really to be is. sponsored by any of this. We want to be really proactive and feel that we're a part of driving that future.
1: Yeah, can sure. you see a future? Oh, sorry, can you see a future where it 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 would be used for sort of intra CBD trips, or is it really going to be about? those high-value trips, say, to the airport and then from the airport into key regional areas? Yeah,
2: so we're really starting on the basis of those higher-value trips rather than the shorter mm. ones, um, and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, right at the start of our transport policy is about promoting active transport because it's mm. good for us, says she that sometimes gets on a tram for one or two stops, which is very naughty. Uh, but we are, we, you know, we want, we want people still to walk along our promenades. It's so important for our retailers and hospitality that we've got pedestrians, we've got cyclists, we've got drivers, etc. So, um, so our focus, yes, has been on those higher um, volume routes. Airport is the obvious one, uh, and then some of the other uh, routes, for example, between Melbourne and Geelong.
0: Mm. I was just going to say, that really will make you a city of yes and a city of possibility. Mm.
2: what a lovely way to finish adrian thank you
0: just to prove i was listening uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, lord mayor thank you ever so much for joining us on inside infrastructure
2: thank you for having me it's been a great conversation i appreciate all the work that you do to really um, drive what is such an important aspect of how we uh, keep improving and developing our cities
1: That's it for today. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn.